Welcome to Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast about entrepreneurship-led economic development. Here is your host, David Ponraj, founder and CEO of Economic Impact Catalyst. I would like to welcome Dr. Robert Blaine to our podcast, Breaking Down Barriers. Dr. Blaine is the Senior Executive and Director for the National League of Cities Institute for Youth, Education and Families. For more than two decades, the YEF Institute has empowered thousands of municipal leaders across America to take bold actions leading to better outcomes and greater equity for all children, youth and families in their communities. Most recently, Dr. Blaine served as the City of Jackson's Chief Administrative Officer. In that role, he oversaw the city's 2,200 employees and managed an annual budget of over 500 million. Dr. Blaine has also led the development and efficiency implementation of the City of Jackson's strategic plan, which promotes a dignity economy, an economic model in which municipal investments were made towards the inherent dignity of every citizen in Jackson through early childhood success, financial empowerment, and equitable workforce development. Welcome, Dr. Blaine. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. So if you don't mind kind of sharing a little bit about your current work and telling us uh, about some of the programs uh, that you're working on. Sure. Well, as you said in the intro, uh, my position is that I, I'm the uh, director of our Institute for Youth Education and Families. And, and essentially what that means is that we think of ourselves as an opportunity engine. Our, our goal is to work with cities in order to create opportunities for the residents that live there. And so uh, we have a, a, a myriad of programs and we work in literally hundreds of cities across the country. Um one of the things that's really exciting about the Institute is that uh, we're composed of a set of vertices inside the Institute. So essentially, we have a team that focuses on early childhood success. We have a team that focuses on youth and young adult connections. Um, we have our education um, a team that literally goes from K-12 through higher learning all the way to workforce development. So really thinking about the full sweep of uh, educational opportunities. Uh, we have our health and wellness teams, and, and they really think about the social determinants of health, so all the things that surround um, a healthy community. And then finally, we have our economic opportunity and financial empowerment team, which really thinks about uh, everything that determines uh, a family's financial success in, in a city. So literally anything that touches a, a family in a city is something is an issue that our institute seems, uh, serves to work on. Tell me a little bit about your background and what spurred you to get into this field. Uh, it's a pretty hard battle to fight, uh, especially in a city like Jackson. So I would love to know what your inspiration is. Oh, well, it's a it's a it's a fairly circuitous route that I've taken to get to this position. Um, as you said before, I've been at the National League of Cities for two years now. Uh, prior to being with NLC, I was uh, the chief administrative officer in Jackson, Mississippi. So that role is more like a city manager. So you're essentially um, the, the person that's in charge of running the city. Um, all of the directors of the various departments report up to the chief administrative officer, and then I report directly to the mayor. So um, uh, that role was was incredibly exciting because it um, 
it provided an opportunity to really think about how cities um, are engines of opportunities for their residents. And, you know, many people think about cities as just the the nuts and bolts, the infrastructure of a city, right? Are, are the roads safe? Are, do we have, you know, broadband where we need it? Do we have, do we pick up the trash on time? You know, the, are the buses running? All of those kinds of things. But, you know, we, one of the things that we talked about with this economic model of human dignity is really thinking about how we invest um, in communities. And there are so many communities in Jackson and, and places like Jackson where there are are parts of the community that have been historically disinvested or underinvested. And so what we really wanted to do was to think intentionally about how we were creating investment in communities that needed it the most. Um, so prior to uh, coming to the city, I was in the academic field. So I was a provost at a small college, uh, Tougaloo College, an HBCU in Jackson, Mississippi. And then prior to that, I was a dean at Jackson State University, um, also in Jackson and an HBCU. And, and, you know, that work in the higher education field was also about trying to create opportunity. It's really about thinking about creating opportunity through the academic environment. And what does that mean for the students that live there, that work there and live there? And uh, what does it mean for them as they're beginning their careers? So all of that is super exciting. Um, but it, the ironic thing is that I'm actually trained for none of it because <laughs> in real life, I was actually trained as an orchestra conductor. And most of my career, um, at the beginning of my career, was conducting and performing in professional orchestras in different parts of the world. So it's unusual training um, for the career path that I'm on. But I think that um, there's something about the arts and about conducting that's about trying to get people to... Uh, to all reach uh, a similar concept, right? So we say get them singing off the same page of music. So uh, whether it's literally doing that in in an, in an opera or whether it's getting people around a goal, around a team, and getting them to all work in the same direction, it's a similar uh, orientation. Fascinating career. And uh, let's go a little bit deeper into kind of uh, because Jackson, Mississippi is such an amazing microcosm of a lot of the challenges that cities across the mm -hmm. U.S. face. What were some uh, lessons that you had learned and implemented in Jackson that mm. uh, as our city managers and economic development uh, professionals that listen to this podcast, what were some key takeaways for, for you uh, from your work there? Yeah. You know, Jackson is a place of um, intense beauty. It is a really beautiful community, and it is uh, it's a place where um, uh, there are true scholars. I mean, true scholarship. It's it's the it's the cradle of the civil rights movement in the United States, and um, uh, there were so many mentors to me there that were just uh, really important in the ways that I think about um, uh, issues in my career. Um, one of the things that that struck me about Jackson is that it's a place of of real income inequality. Um, there's super huge uh, disparity um, in income uh, across the city. So you have pockets of incredible wealth, and then you have some pockets of real poverty. And um, that uh, disparity of opportunity, um, you could you could literally map it out. Um, census track by census track across the city. And so one of the things that we started to think about is um, essentially the data 
of disparities in communities? And how do we actually have a way to have a data-informed practice where we're actually looking at what are some of these base-level metrics across a community? Um, thinking about all kinds of different indices, I mean, health indices, transportation indices, educational indices, all of these, and really painting a picture, a holistic picture of where communities are. And then using that data to, to try and be targeted in um, our interventions. Because one of the challenges with the city is, of course, you don't have unlimited budget. And uh, we're, we're one of the parts of government where we have to balance a budget every year. There's no such thing as us, <laughs> you know, not, not having a balanced budget. So thinking about how we um, were strategic about our various investments and how we use them to really target or micro-target a population and then really trying to measure the effectiveness of the impact of that work uh, to see if we were actually being fidelitous to the process. And so um, we, we built this data infrastructure that we used um, as a way to really try and, uh, number one, uh, be able to forecast uh, what the impact of, a, of an initiative might be, but then also to be able to measure progress over time and then to see if we were actually creating the impact that was desired. Can you give us one example of, of a metric that you tracked, uh, especially thinking about a city like Jackson mm -hmm. and thinking about this effort that is going to take decades to turn around, yeah. right? Income disparities, mm -hmm. it's, it's generational problems, right? We're not going to see it That's right. in one person's lifetime. So what metrics do you have that can show incremental mm. progress, knowing that in the long term, if we come back 50 years from now, this metric will actually help us get where we need to be? Yeah. One of the um, early challenges that we had as an administration was... Uh, we were uh, threatened with a state takeover of our public school system. And so uh, uh, the mayor had been in office for maybe a month. We were, we were literally still trying to figure out where the bathroom was in the building. And uh, <laughs> yeah. the state uh, superintendent of education called us up and said that she wanted a meeting with us. And um, in Jackson, you know, the education department is literally down the street. So she walked down the street uh, came into our conference room, dropped a 700-page report in the middle of the table, and said since she was there to take over our school district. And, and the mayor looked at me and he was like, there's no way that we're going to let this happen. You know? And, and uh, the point was that the, the challenge for us was that uh, taking over this, that the state had never taken over a school district the size of Jackson's. We're the largest, the second largest school district in the state. But even beyond that, the state hadn't had a successful initiative um, turning around a school district that was the size of one of our wards. We have seven wards in the city. So the, it, it, the, the capacity of the state to do better than what our Department of Education was doing, um, we felt was pretty limited. And so, you know, we, we thought of this more as a political move than anything else, right? And so um, uh, we, we partnered with... Uh, uh, the Kellogg Foundation, which was a philanthropy. Um, and uh, the mayor uh, created a partnership with the governor. Now, you have to understand that this is one of the youngest black mayors in the country who's mayor of a highly democratic city. And then you have a very Tea Party Republican governor of the state of Mississippi. 
And what the what the mayor did, um, uh, our mayor's name is Shokwe Lumumba. And what Shokwe did was he, um, he created something called Better Together, saying that we're better working together than we are fighting apart. And he was able to convince the governor that it was in his best interest for the school district to, to remain under the, the charge of the city and for the city essentially to be the conservator of the school district. Because the school district and the city um, are on parallel planes, but they don't report to each other. And so, um, but the mayor has the ability to appoint all of the school board members. So the mayor literally fired the entire school board. We brought together an, an entirely new school board, all based on the skill sets that we needed to effectuate the plan that we were trying to pull together. We worked with the Kellogg Foundation, and we created uh, a, essentially a door-knocking campaign. Uh, we wanted to survey what residents in Jackson wanted out of their educational system, and we literally knocked on 44,000 doors in the city of Jackson, tried to get every single resident um, what their opinion was, and we learned tons from this. And so from all of this work and partnering with the Kellogg Foundation and a number of local institutions and with the school board and the like, we put together this plan. And uh, at the end, we hired a, a new superintendent to uh, effectuate the plan. Um, that was the first year of our administration. Um, by year, the end of year two, the school, direct, school district had moved from an F district to a C minus district. Now, I've never been excited about a C minus in my life, but I was overjoyed, <laughs> right, to be able to see yep. that kind of progress. And what that meant was that it wasn't that we had a failing school district. It really meant that we had failing schools. We had pockets of failure. We had really, really excellent schools in some areas. And then we had schools that were underperforming in other areas. And so it was really a question of equity um, across the district and really thinking about how we were investing in those communities that needed it the most, right? So it was a real tangible example of this idea of economic human dignity and really focusing the investment on communities so that opportunity became more equal and ubiquitous across the district. Wow, that's a that's a fascinating story of a turnaround. Mm -hmm. uh, and looking at how that has informed your work at the National League of Cities, can you tell us a little bit about the programs that you've created since you've come on board uh, because I think that uh, really uh, what you've learned at Jackson, you've been able to kind of package into, there are so many other cities across the Midwest and so many rural communities across the U.S. that have some of the same challenges. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that, um, so when we, when I was making the transition from Jackson to uh, to the National League of Cities, it was right at the time of the change in administrations. And, and one of the things that, um, uh, the new administration started talking about was this American Rescue Plan um, and, and really thinking about a very substantial stimulus package um, that was going to be uh, put forward. And um, one of the things that the National League of Cities advocated for, um, our, our CEO's name is Clarence Anthony, and he was very dogged in pushing that the way that packages have stimulus packages have come down historically is that it's been done through uh, essentially HUD funding, which means that cities of a certain size, um, what are called uh, in 
cities that that have a, a certain threshold um, are the ones that get the get the funding, the direct funding from this from the federal government. And so, what we advocated for was that there needed to be even funding across the board for every city, no matter what their size is, because every single community has been impacted by this pandemic. And we need to make sure that we are supporting all cities, not just the larger cities, uh, to be able to be resilient. And so as a part of the uh, the American Rescue Plan, there was a section of it where there was direct funding to every single city in the in the U.S., all proportional to their size, um, which was a huge, huge thing for communities uh, that had lost revenue, that had lost business impact, all of this uh, because of the pandemic. There was so there was that that first burst of funding through ARPA, but then there was additional funding that was available that was all application based. So all of that funding was competitive funding. And um, many small to mid-sized cities lacked the capacity to compete for those uh, competitive dollars. And the reason that they lacked that capacity is because the larger cities actually have federal grant writing teams. They have folks that are, their full-time job is to write these federal grant applications. If you're from my city, Jackson, Mississippi, and um, we had two and a half grant writers in the whole city, and this is a city of uh, almost 170,000 residents. Um, and so I had, a, I had a grant writer on our planning department team. I had one in our public works team, and I had kind of half a grant writer in public safety. There's no chance that Jackson was going to apply for one of these big federal grants that we really, really needed um, because of the impact of the, of the pandemic. So from the National League of Cities, we started thinking about what it meant to be able to support small to mid-sized cities that have really, really been impacted by the pandemic, um, that really need this stimulus, but lack the capacity to actually apply for the dollars. And so um, our CEO, Clarence Anthony, met with uh, some partners from uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies, and um, there we were having conversations with the White House at the same time. And, and the idea was that uh, we were going to need some kind of, of mechanism to help small to mid-sized cities get ready for the dollars that were about to come down. And so we, we started to talk about these readiness initiatives. And so in, in partnering with Bloomberg Philanthropies, um, we created something called a boot camp. And it's a set of essentially courses that we've developed, all organized to be able to drive cities to compete for, um, to, to create rather high quality applications for these large federal programs. And it's a part of a larger initiative that Bloomberg is running called the Local Infrastructure Hub. And so the Infrastructure Hub is really trying to organize, uh, create a portal that is going to support cities to be able to understand what what opportunities are available and then to be able to provide the resources that are needed for them to be able to connect with those opportunities. And that's all being driven through the uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, what we call IIJA or the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. The first one you referred to, was that the state local uh, state and local fiscal recovery fund. That was the one that everybody got a proportion of. That's exactly yeah. right. That's yeah. exactly right. Yes. Yeah. 
And we've been advocating for that with a lot of cities because mm-hmm. you can actually go and find exactly how much money your county has received That's right. and be able to get a portion of that for your city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so uh, with this boot camp, you can now actually have a city that might not have a grant writer on staff or might have half a grant writer on staff actually use a blueprint That's to right. be able to actually get their application on par with mm-hmm. a bigger city that might have four or five people on staff and might be getting all the money today. That's exactly right. And so as a part of the program, the way that we've designed it, um, we have a whole set of subject matter experts. And the the curriculum is, is really organized kind of like an online course. So each there are eight modules that a city would go through. Each one of the modules is designed so that at the end of that module, of that two-week period, um, a city is able to complete a section of the application. So we go section by section through the application process, and um, we've actually built out tools um, to help the cities with, for example, data they would not be able to uh, produce by themselves. Uh, we've brought together a set of subject matter experts who um, are experts at financial budgets for these various grant programs. And many of these budgets can be fairly complicated. So we have a whole set of subject matter experts for that. We have a a group of subject matter experts that really just think about the community engagement process and how does the city build a really compelling community engagement plan. Um, We have a set of subject matter experts that are just working with cities on developing their narrative and really telling the story of how this program is going to impact the local community. So the, the the goal is that we're walking a city through the process of really constructing a highly competitive application um, and then really helping them to use the data of where the disparities are in their communities. So we've built out this big data tool where we can look across over 20,000 communities across the entire country and literally go census track by census track across each one of those communities. And then we have tens and tens of indices that a community can look at to really see where disparities are in their communities and tie that back to a federal funding program. So now we can see what that baseline is, just like I was talking about in Jackson, that where we started that work. But now you can see where that baseline is talk about how this federal program could impact that baseline and then actually design a program that's focused on moving a community so that there's a, an increased and in, an improved quality of life there. Wow, this is incredible. And so now I have a lot more questions and I'm sure our communities have a lot more questions. Uh, I'll try to, and this is in no particular order, but one of the things I'm instantly curious about is uh Yes, they can apply and they can get the funding through this bootcamp. What about you know capacity creation on the mm. back end to actually fulfill the requirements? I know you'd mentioned a little bit about kind of also enabling programmatic elements once they've received the funding. Yeah. But in a lot of these cases, even if you look at that state and local Re- uh, fiscal recovery act, a lot of people didn't want to touch the money because they were unsure That's of right. if they were audited <laughs> how they would Absolutely. do on the audit. So. What is the support on the back end? Is this bootcamp yeah. envisioned to also support on the back end? So that's a great question. Um, one of the things that we said when we started the ARPA work with the state and local recovery um, fund was that um, 
and this is looking at looking backwards at my work, for example, in Jackson, um, city managers and chief administrative officers, those people that are running cities, um, have really, really strong infrastructure for periods of austerity. I know exactly what to do if we're falling below our budgetary targets, right? And uh, there's a whole set of levers that I can pull if uh, if we're expect if we're expecting that we're going to have some kind of shortfall. Um, there is very, very little infrastructure to be able to think strategically and creatively about large infusions of cash. Um, the reason that there is no infrastructure for that is because um, it's not a thing. It doesn't ever happen. <laughs> so You reason... don't plan for something that <laughs> exactly, never happens. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. The reason that we call this a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity is because it's never happened before. We've never seen this level of funding and this level of funding being directed directly towards cities. So um, one of the things that we do through the infrastructure hub is um, uh, we try to help communities vision what the pro what what the what the impact of programs is, and so really that the front side is trying to really think strategically about how we create a strong visioning process so that um, a, a city is really elevating the um, uh, the quality of their of their application, the quality of their program. We want to be able to raise their aspirations right through that. Um, the other side is that once uh, once they finish the curriculum, um, the eighth module, the last module of the curriculum, is focused on long term capacity building, and our goal is to be able to essentially set cities up for success. So we we have a, a, a an entire session on what happens if you're funded, how do you prepare for compliance to make set yourself up to be compliant, and then if you're not funded, how do you pre prepare yourself to be able to reapply in a future, um, uh, future opportunities. One of the things that we're really thinking strategically about as an organization is the next step for us, which is really thinking about um, what I've called fidelity and compliance, right? And so how are we... Um, helping cities to remain fidelitous to the actual program itself and really thinking about what those population level impacts are. How, what does that mean for workforce in a community? What does that mean for economic development in a community? What does that mean for um, business growth in a community? What does it mean for, um, uh, you know, when we think about returning citizens and, and populations like that, what does it mean for them? to be able to participate in all of this growth that's happening in a community. And so this is where we're, our mind is right now, and we're starting to be able to spin out some programs that are focused on once a city is funded, now how, do we, how, do, how are we fidelis to the process so that those secondary and tertiary impacts that we want to see in communities are really being manifest? So um, I, I'm... I'm very excited about where we are right now, but I'm even more excited about the opportunity to work with communities around this, these two pieces, right? Fidelitousness to the process, and then also really thinking about um, how they are being fully compliant, because we want to be able to show that cities are good stewards of these dollars and are fully compliant with all of the federal mandates. So let's let's bring this conversation a full circle in that let's say we 
go back three years from uh, in the past and we say Jackson had the ability to apply for something like this, mm-hmm. right? And, and the reason I'm asking this question is because we have not been able to move with any meaningful significance the wealth gap in this country. That's right. If you look at some of the reports even coming from the St. Louis Fed, you know, a lot of these metrics keep getting worse. That's right. So, right, as we see this money coming into the cities, if the cities are not equipped to understand mm. the challenges they face, mm-hmm. right? The disparity will, I mean, there'll be lots of really good headlines, absolutely. but the disparity will still be there. So bringing it a full circle to your own personal journey, mm-hmm. you know, how do we make sure that once the cities are funded on top of the fidelity and the compliance, there is also a very intentional way to measure uh, the, 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 the the lowest of the low, right? Yep. Uh, yep. The, the ones that are not taken care of. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, Ironically, that your question is, so today we have a meeting with a, a funding program that we're working on right now. It's a partnership with the Kellogg Foundation, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Atlanta Federal Reserve. And we're working across 20 um, communities in the South, a program focused on economic inclusion. And this is all thinking about how cities are being intentional about creating an environment of growth for black and brown businesses, um, underserved communities across the South. Um, And so uh, it gets right to the kernel of what you're talking about because um, our partner with the Atlanta Federal Reserve has all of this data about the wealth gap and about how the wealth gap is actually growing, about um, opportunity and stagnation of opportunities. And so where we really see our um, uh, strength as an organization is to be able to fill that gap and to be able to support cities in building out these strategic plans and then giving them the technical assistance that they need to make sure that those plans are actually being effective. So when we start to think about there's an opportunity with all of these dollars coming into this into a city and then a city is is strategic about economic inclusion and building an economic inclusion strategy. Um, It means that every single one of those contracts that come out, there is a strategy to make sure that it's just not the usual uh, characters that are able to compete for those dollars, but that we're building a plan so that it's actually buffering and buffeting the entire community. So uh, I have a few more questions on the the logistics of the program, but Mm -hmm. before we move to the, the last part, can you tell me, and I'll give you two choices. You can either tell me an example of a city that's been able to go through this process and where they are today, mm-hmm. uh, or you can tell me about your vision. Like if I talk to you 10 years from now, mm. you know, what would we see that's meaningfully different uh, from this program? So you have your choice. You can say both and you can answer both the questions yeah. or one or the other. I'll start with the last one first. So, um, you know, uh, I think it was it was it's it's fairly common news now that um, Jackson received a fairly large appropriation um, out of the Infrastructure uh, Investment and Jobs Act specifically to fix the the, the challenges with the water system there, and so um, uh, Jackson will receive six hundred million dollars to literally re- replace the entire uh, water distribution system. Um, what I think that means is that there is an opportunity 
not just to think about how this water system, uh, improved quality of water system means that people won't go without water or, or that the water that they have will have a higher quality. That is a fantastic primary benefit. But there's also um, lots and lots of companies, um, all the way from the folks that are digging up the roads or uh, uh, you know laying the, the pipe to the folks that are servicing the people that are doing the work to the people that uh, literally are uh, serving meals and, and cooking the restaurants and there is uh, there are primary, secondary, tertiary impacts of that amount of funding coming into a community. What I would want to see 10 years from now is that underserved communities in Jackson, that what, what we have seen as underserved communities in Jackson actually make big strides in creating greater opportunity because of this really large investment by the federal government. And that businesses are growing, that businesses are hiring more people. The, the people that are being hired are buying houses. They are keeping beautiful neighborhoods. They are reinvesting in their communities. Their schools are doing better and their schools are educating their children. Their children are going on to higher education and they are then creating intergenerational wealth. That's the goal of all of this is that not just do we want to fix roads, but we want to actually create the infrastructure for intergener intergenerational wealth. And thinking about uh, physical infrastructure, there is a connection that we try to make, a direction, direct connection between physical infrastructure and human infrastructure. And it is that, that bridge between physical and human infrastructure that really is about how a community is advanced not just the stuff in the community, the water distribution or the roads or the telephone poles, but really about what that means to people's lived ex uh, experience in a community. Wow, that is really powerful. And I think uh, a much better way to measure than just do I have clean drinking water, right? Um, Absolutely. Because uh, bringing clean drinking water into these communities will help with uh, better physical uh, state, better mm -hmm. mental state, and uh, ultimately the ability for these businesses to grow and, and serve the community. Uh, looking at, uh, if, if you have a success story from your boot camp, we'd love to hear that. And I'd love to then hear about uh, kind of the criteria for your boot camp. And I think you said uh, that you don't have to be a member of the National League of Cities to uh, to, to apply, correct? Or That's correct. Be? That's correct. You do yes. not have to be. Yeah. yeah. So so one okay. once, I think a great city to... Um, to bring up as an example is Mount Vernon, New York. So uh, uh, I had the great opportunity to meet with the mayor from Mount Vernon, New York recently. Um, she is just uh, incredible. I mean, uh, when you meet her, she is so powerful and engaging. Um, you can really just feel the impact that she wants to be able to create for her community. And so we started talking about um, ways that the National League of Cities could be a partner with Mount Vernon to, to really help her to achieve her, her vision. And so um, uh, Mount Vernon is actually um, uh, registering for this next set of boot camps. And they, have, uh, they actually have a grant writer on their team. 
but their grant writer is actually going through this process because our goal is not just to help them to create a grant application for this grant program, but it is to be able to, um, to, to give them the capacity to be able to compete for this opportunity and many others. So we like to say that we're not just giving them a fish with this program, but really teaching them how to fish for this opportunity and many, many more. So um, I think a, a Mount Vernon is a quintessential ex example of a city that um, can really take advantage of this opportunity. Um, you know, we're going to lead them through the process of creating the grant application and making it very competitive. Once they submit that application, um, it takes about a year uh, for the federal agencies to be able to review all of those applications and then finally say who those winners are. So we won't know um, who's actually funded for another year from now, but um but going through the process of this of these boot camps, our goal is is to build the capacity of these cities, um, and so we we hope that we see lots of funded programs. But what we also hope is that we see lots of future opportunities and cities being able to engage in a way that they have historically not had the capacity for. Wow! Yeah, I will be following their story as well. Thank you for uh, sharing that. And if a city uh, official that's listening to this podcast podcast wants to apply, could you let us know what the application process looks like to be accepted into the boot camp? Absolutely. So um, uh, the website is is localinfrastructure.org, um, localinfrastructure.org. And um, you simply click on the boot camps tab and it will take you to the registration page. Um, we have a number of programs that are available um, for this current set of boot camps. Um, there are actually, we do five programs um, every four months. So a boot camp lasts for four months long. That Those eight modules go across four months. And um, the five programs that we're launching we're this, this month in January um, are the Energy Efficiency and Conservation Block Grant Program. There's about $55 million that's available to communities in that program. Uh, the Charging and Fueling Infrastructure Program, which is really about building charging stations um, in communities. There's about $2.5 billion available in that program. There are two sections of the st Safe Streets and Roads for All program. So there's an action planning grant and an implementation grant. And there's about $2.5 billion available in those two programs. And then finally, uh, Brownfields program, which is really thinking about cleaning up um, sites that have been uh, deemed in industrially hazardous. And so there might be uh, an old factory or even a, a former dry cleaners where um, the, the contaminants that have been there um, make that site um, uh, difficult to develop because they have to go through these remediation processes. And so there's $1.5 billion that's available through the, the Brownfields program. So we're launching these five programs in January, but literally every four months we'll be launching another five set of programs. And we'll be doing this over the course of two years. So over the course of two years, we will um, we will cover 30 different programs out of the bipartisan infrastructure law. So literally um, everything from broadband 
to clean air, energy and power, from water programs and roads and bridges to uh, electric vehicles and environmental remediation. So there's a wide, uh, a wide gamut of opportunities that are available. And if the five programs that you're looking for are not in this next uh, set of programs that we're launching in January, just keep checking the website because every four months we're going to launch a totally new set of programs. And the goal is that each one of these programs align with the application deadlines. So we select the programs so that by the time you reach the end of the of the uh, of the boot camp, you can actually hit send and um, in uh, to your application, and it'll go straight to the federal agency that uh, that is administrating that that program. And this program is free of cost, correct? That cities? is correct. It is free of cost. That is uh, very important. Yeah, it is very important. It is very important. Yeah. So we have some yeah. very generous funders, um, as I said. Uh, Bloomberg, Bloomberg Philanthropies is coordinating the effort. Um, we're funded by uh, the Balmer Group, um, Emerson Collective, the Ford Foundation, and the Kresge Foundation. All of these philanthropies have come together um, to be able to support the work um, uh, that we're doing in the, in the local infrastructure hub. Wow, this is such incredibly important work, and I can see so many cities uh, already kind of lining up to, to be a part of this. We will add all of the information around how they can access this portal in the show notes. And uh, if they want to get in touch with you, Dr. Blaine, uh, are you on social media? How would how can somebody get in touch with you? I am. Um, I am on social media. Uh, you can find me at Robert Blaine at almost any of the uh, social media okay. <laughs> um, portals. So it's, it's you know, Robert Bain at Twitter, Robert Blaine at Facebook. It's it, on whatever, whatever that program, it's basically just under my name. Awesome. Well, it's been such an incredible pleasure. Uh, we would love to bring you back uh, a year from now to kind of hear the success stories uh, of this program. Uh, but I want to thank you so much for your time today and uh, th and thank you for generously sharing of, of all of your uh, lived experiences uh, that has allowed you to kind of bring this program to life. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. And, and I would love to come back in a year. And uh, I'm, I'm going to be excited to share um, many of the success stories that we hope to create. Awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast about entrepreneurship-led economic development. Special thanks to our renowned guests for joining us. You can find show notes, more episodes, send us ideas, and subscribe to our newsletter on our website, economicimpactcatalyst.com. Breaking Down Barriers is a presentation of Economic Impact Catalyst and is edited by Lauren Bernard. Please rate review, and subscribe to Breaking Down Barriers, available for free wherever you listen to your podcasts.